Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined with Mike McIntyre. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. You can follow me at Ben Lewis SN590, and you can follow Mike at McIntyre Tennis. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and members of the Tennis channel podcast network and another special episode ahead here as we have former world number 12 and former french open quarterfinalist tatiana gullivan joining the program later as she looks to be the next player on the comeback trail we'll look back at the career of superstar maria sharapova who announced her retirement at the age of 32 Uh, but first mike again we had an incredible result from a canadian 17 year old Layla annie fernandez reaching her maiden wta final as she to Heather Watson in Acapulco and now jumps to 126 in the rankings. And again, Mike, and what felt like it would have been a quiet week, I guess, on the WTA, we get another amazing Canadian result. It just doesn't seem to be ending, does it? I mean, for anyone who thought that 2019 was a fluke for Canada or, or the start of 2019 wouldn't be repeated, I, I almost feel in some ways we're having like deja vu, albeit with some different names. But the, the consistent thing here is that Canada is continuing to produce on the tennis court. And this time it's 17-year-old Leila Annie Fernandez with a breakout moment. Building on her top five defeat of Belinda Bencic, she uh, racks up six wins, including qualifying, without dropping uh, a set uh, in Acapulco before she ran into the experienced Heather Watson. It turned out to be a very entertaining um, final uh, against the more experienced British player where she saved nine championship points in total. And that second set was just absolute insanity, how she managed to to come back, both from a breakdown earlier in that second set, but more importantly in the tie break where she found herself down six points to two. She really showed something to uh, not just us Canadian uh, tennis fans and, and media, but but the world uh, at large, really, in terms of, uh, of tennis fans. Yeah, certainly endearing herself uh, very well to the Mexican crowd. Uh, just her fighting spirit towards the end of the match where it felt like, you know, this is over. You have a pretty experienced player in Heather Watson who's a, a point away from victory in a tiebreak 6-2 to two, and will get her serve. And uh, you felt like Fernandez was finally down and out, but so resilient uh, throughout that match and really throughout the tournament, as you mentioned, had to come through qualifying, which is so impressive. Uh, I, I mean, elements of the draw did sort of open up for her, but you look at some of these wins, uh, some standout wins like Anastasia Potapova, who's an experienced player she defeated, and also beating uh, Renata Zarazua in that, that semifinal, who is a Mexican player herself, so she was very much against the crowd and handling a tough environment and, and getting herself to the final. So it, it's really an incredible result. And as you sort of said, she's just been building on what she has done already early in 2020 with a huge win over Bencic and basically what we saw from her uh, late in 2019. It's, it's funny that at some point in, in this run in Acapulco, she became, to me, almost you know the favorite or certainly one of the favorites, despite the fact that her ranking wasn't necessarily better than many of her competitors. But just the way she's been playing this year, that, that big win over Bencic and what that did for her confidence, clearly. Uh, and, and the fact that many of these players have never faced her before. So she's an unknown quantity. She's got the lefty thing going on as well, which is not something many players are comfortable facing. And you could just tell that confidence is growing with every victory. Even though she had never beaten Heather Watson before, and even though she still hasn't, she got a lot closer this time. And and despite the fact that by that third set, it seemed like she had kind of run out of gas, 
what she showed in that second set where she could have shrugged the shoulders and, and basically felt like, okay, I'm, I'm done here facing all these championship points in the tie break. What an absolute fighter to just one after the other, find a way to battle back into the tie break and snatch it from Heather Watson, who must've been absolutely stunned at the moment that happened. What, what have we learned Ben about Layla over the last year? Cause we've gotten to talk to her several times from her, French Open junior win uh, to at the Rogers Cup. Uh, at the end of the year, we did a little recap with her as well. What, what's the biggest thing or, or a couple of things that you've learned from, from watching her and, and talking to her over the past year? I, I think certainly her focus. Um, you, you listen back to a, a few of the interviews we've had with her over the past year, and she just seemed like such a, an all-business type of player. She's so keen on improving each and every day. She sets goals, and, and she works hard to achieve them uh, at different stages in her career. And I, I know if you listen back, I, I believe she had that goal of getting inside the top 100 this season, and now she's ranked 126, so she's already rising in that direction very rapidly. Uh, but I, I don't sense a, a big ego on her at all. Uh, she has confidence confidence but not arrogance and I'm just so impressed because she's you look at her and she looks as like one of the more undersized players on the WTA and of course she's still 17 years old but she packs a strong punch given given her size yeah just give her a little bit of time to put in a little bit more time in the gym and to continue to to grow and mature and and look out because she already is such an aggressive player that if she gets a little bit more power behind it uh, that's just going to do, uh, you know, even more good for her moving forward. To, to me, like you said, so nice off the court, like one of the nicest, uh, you know, young women we've ever had on the show to talk to, super giving with her time mm-hmm. and, and accommodating. And then when she gets on the court, whoa, it's like this <laughs> other, you know, face of her that, that takes over this other persona. And I mean, we're going to talk about Maria Sharapova a little bit later, but between points and if she, you know, uh, if she loses a point, if she, she makes an error, She's at the back of the court doing that Maria Sharapova thing, talking to herself, pumping herself out, swinging the racket forehand back and just, you know, imagining, visualizing and getting ready for the next point. And I don't think you see that from too many 17-year-olds. No, uh, she looks unfazed. You you can see the intensity in her face when she's playing a match. I found this very interesting, by the way, because they had the televised final in Acapulco uh, after... Layla Annie Fernandez lost her match to Heather Watson. Uh, Nadal was going to play his final with Taylor Fritz, and it was delayed because some lights were out. And uh, on television, you could see uh, Nadal and Taylor Fritz kind of doing little warm-ups. And on camera, walking past was Layla Annie Fernandez, who was laying out a mat on the ground with her coach. This is post-final to uh, to stretch it out. And it sounded like they were already talking about the match and maybe what went wrong and what you can learn for next time. Uh, you know, it's it's not like they were sort of off just celebrating the fact that she made her first WTA final. It was a focus of how do we get better and improve from here? And I, I, right. I find that so impressive uh, at the age of 17. And, and also, and, and also neither was she, she wasn't celebrating a great week, but she also wasn't, you know, down in the dumps and moping Correct. or upset about it. Yeah. Um, she, she did get emotional in her post-match uh, finalist um, conference or uh, sorry, speech on the court. And that's understandable as she was thanking her, you know, first she thanked her coach and her, and her dad, uh, who also fulfills the role of coach. But when she started speaking about her mom and her sister, she welled up with, with tears and had a moment that was really embraced by the crowd and embraced on social media as well, uh, showing the, the, the human and the emotional side of things. But then for you to see her on the court, like you said, strategizing immediately afterwards, it's like, okay, back to business. 
What did we learn? What can we do different? And how do we move forward from here? Uh, and, and that's one of the things that really, I think, bodes well for her, uh, you know, championship mentality that she will be hoisting a WTA trophy at some point for sure, uh, given what she's learning. And, and, and learning is, is the whole process. And last year we saw her make finals in Waco, Texas, in Granby. She won in Gadna where she took out a few fellow Canadians who at the time it seemed like an upset. And now she's firmly entrenched as the number two Canadian how excited are you about the prospect of a one-two combo with, combo with a healthy Bianca Andreescu and Leila Annie Fernandez as well? <laughs> well, if you probably said that at the front end of the year, I, I would think let's let's not get ahead of ourselves <laughs> and and dial it back a little bit here, Mike. You know, Bianca top five winning the U.S. Open, that's enough. But uh, the more and more I see from Leila Annie Fernandez, I mean, the the results are speaking for themselves. I, I think the the point here to really make uh, from the result in Acapulco, not just, not just the wind over, over Belinda Bencic and not just what she did sort of at the, at the challenger level in 2019 and winning the junior French open as well. I think she's really officially arrived, uh, arrived as, as a WTA pro mainstay. Uh, I, I think she's taken that next step where she belongs in all these WTA premier international events, premier five and, and premier mandatory. And uh, she's going to be a threat to win matches wherever she goes um obviously there's there's still plenty of steps to be taken to reach that next level where you're breaking inside top 100 is the next goal and i think it's really really close and, and then we're talking top 75 top 50 uh but to me she's just a player who's arrived now and uh there, there's much more in her development which i love to see is is i i think her ceiling is so much higher than this and she's already putting up such great results yeah, the junior career is definitely long gone at this point, and even playing the smaller ITF events is really something she's not going to have to go through either. Yeah. Um, qualifying, certainly. I mean, she's ranked 126 in the world now, so qualifying for a lot of the, the bigger events, but she's someone that I think is going to be very dangerous in qualifying, someone nobody's going to want to face. And yeah, if she gets that ranking up in the top 100, if she could be you know, direct draw for perhaps French Open or even Wimbledon this year uh, at the age of 17, almost 18, Doing pretty good. There are many players who'd love to be in that kind of position. And we've been talking for a while about how there's depth on the men's side of Canadian tennis right now. And on the women's, really behind Bianca, there was a real gap. Well, it looks like she's ready to fill that gap. And uh, we look forward to seeing what she can do next. Speaking of which, she's already into her next tournament. She got to skip qualies in Monterey and got special entry there because of her result in Acapulco. And uh, already has beaten Stephanie Vogel from uh, Switzerland. So maybe a little bit of uh, revenge for that Fed Cup loss to the Swiss right. uh, earlier this year. And uh, she's got uh, an interesting opponent next who, again, months ago we might have said, okay, really she's in over her head. But uh, Ben, tell us who she facing next and why does this give us some confidence? Well, she gets American Sloan Stevens, who uh, really unbelievably at this event in Monterey, who, uh, you know, it's not an event I would normally expect Sloan Stevens to play, but her ranking has dipped uh, you know, 37 now. And at this tournament, she picked up her first win of the season, uh, beating a wild card who was ranked uh, just inside the top 400 in three sets. So Sloan Stevens has had a brutal stretch of the season. Uh, you look back at Brisbane, she lost her first match there. She lost her first match in Adelaide. She went out first round at the Australian Open. And just last week at the Mexican Open, she lost first round. So 0-4 for 2020. And the struggles have really dated back to last year. So if if you could ask a time to face Sloane Stevens, now is the time. She has been slumping uh, really terribly. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her last win prior to this week in Monterey was was in September, just to give you some context. So that's basically what, like half a year ago almost. Um, So, yeah, in terms of if you're going to face her at any point in time for Leila Annie Fernandez, who's coming in playing so well, then someone whose confidence is clearly struggling like Sloane Stephens, um, this could be a lot closer than uh, many people who are unfamiliar with Leila probably uh, might expect. Yeah, and uh, the more and more we see her, uh, the more and more I think the tennis world is getting familiar. So Leila Annie Fernandez already into the round of 16 um, at the Monterey Open, which is a terrific result. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Matchpoint Can. You can follow me at Ben Lewis SN590. Follow Mike at McIntyre Tennis. And a special episode for us here because uh, very excited to uh, team up with a little promotion uh, with Yonix. Canada for a potential new racket for our listeners and uh, very excited to give you the details right now. Well, the Yonix E-Zone Tennis Racket Series is delivering unmatched power and comfort for beginners to the world's best athletes like Naomi Osaka and Nick Kyrgios, who have both used the E-Zone Series for the entirety of their pro careers. The racket has the largest sweet spot in the series history and their arrow-shaped frame produces a more comfortable feel at impact, even on your off-centered shots. Now, all you have to do uh, to enter the contest for a chance at the E-Zone Racket, you follow us on Instagram at Matchpoint Canada and follow Yonix Canada at Yonix Canada. And one lucky listener will have the chance to win an E-Zone Racket of your choice. All you have to do, follow us and then post a picture or video or story uh, with the hashtag Match point Canada Yonix, and then we will randomly select a winner. And I'll, I'll just point out this promotion is running over our next four episodes. So hashtag Match Point Canada Yonix on Instagram. Post a picture, video, or story, and uh, that new E Zone racket could be yours. You are listening to Match Point Canada, and Mike, we had a great opportunity to chat with. Former WTA player and world number 12, Tatiana Golovin, uh, earlier last week. And uh, just another name who is, I guess, pondering a comeback on the tour. Yeah, this one was kind of special, you know, for me, because it it harkens back to a time before I was in the media covering tennis tournaments. Uh, And and so I was really a fan of the sport purely when she last played a competitive match. Um, prior to her comeback in the fall. And that was all the way back in May 2008 against Caroline Wozniacki was her last match before her first sort of retirement. And she was ranked 21st in the world at the time. But a back injury and autoimmune uh, issues forced her off the tour for an incredible 11-plus years. I forgot how young she was when she left the game. Could you imagine? I mean, 20 years old and now trying to get back into the sport after such a long, long absence. It's really an incredible story and uh, it was great for Tatiana to join us so uh, why don't we throw to that interview right now and uh, here's what Tatiana Golovin had to say with us. She's a former world number 12 in singles she also won the 2004 French Open mixed doubles event alongside Richard Gasquet Tatiana Golovin. Uh, Thanks so much Tatiana for joining us on Matchpoint Canada this week. Hi thank you thanks for having me. Tatiana, we were all very excited towards the end of uh, last season when we heard that uh, after a long hiatus from playing professional tennis, you intended to come back to the tour at the age of 31 years old. Uh, Can you give us an update on how things are going in terms of your comeback and and how you felt after those those first few matches last fall? 
Um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite a big uh, change in my life. Obviously, uh, last year, um, I kind of of uh, an impulsive decision, I guess, to come back to tennis because obviously I had stopped when I was only 20, and uh, basically I never touched a racket for 11 years and never went running and never did anything. So. Actually, it happened, um, you know, after Wimbledon, I kind of came back home and said, okay, I'm going to, I want to try again. I was there with my family uh, commentating for French TV. And when I want to announce that to my family, they were like, uh, okay, you should probably get some rest. You're a little bit tired. So, um, you know, I don't think anybody really believed me, but uh, I kind of uh, practiced for a little bit in August. And then in September, I really started um, to practice a little bit harder. And my main goal was obviously just to get back into competition so I think there was a lot of talk, obviously, because uh, Kleischer's was coming back and kind of our announcement that we came back, that we were going to come back, um, came out at the same time, which wasn't exactly my idea because I kind of wanted to keep it um, keep it on the down low. But, um, but you know, it came out because people were seeing me practice at the at Roland Garros. And, um, you know, I was very happy with the way I played in Luxembourg after only six weeks of practice. Um, but, uh, obviously after I was really, I was actually very happy that my back wasn't bothering me, which why, which is why I had stopped 11 years ago. So I was really focused just on that. And maybe I forgot to focus on the rest of my body, which, uh, led to, uh, out, uh, strain and then uh, broken ribs and then an elbow injury. So I just think I didn't really maybe think through how, um, I need to deal with a comeback and like take the time. I know Kim, you know, took a, you know over a year to play, and she's always played even when she stopped. So for me, I really rushed into getting back into the competition. I don't regret it at all because that's exactly what I wanted to do. I just kind of wanted to feel that I was able to play again and that I could play again. And with that, I was really satisfied. But I think there's a lot more work that needs to obviously um, needs to be put in. Uh, to stay at a at a professional level, I can certainly relate being in my thirties as well to uh, how the body <laughs> does not adjust as it once did unfortunately um, so it was the injury that that had you halt your career at such a young age. What kept you away for for so long, and what was it at a certain point that convinced you, "Hey, maybe I can try this again well, I think i 'm just kind of a uh... Uh, when I do something, I do it 100% and I do it fully. And when I was told at 20 years old that there's no way you're going to be able to play professional uh, tennis or do any professional sports with uh, autoimmune disease that you know affects your lower back, um, I think that for me, I had to mentally just kind of stop. I couldn't kind of try and keep going because I think that would have really paralyzed my whole life in general because I would have always been um, you know, halted by, by the pain, halted by the injury, and then basically just never move on. So I think for me, it was really important to kind of uh, have a clean cut. And that's kind of what I did. But then, you know, I started obviously in 10 years, medicine has a lot of improvements and which is why I was able to actually even practice for those few months and, you know, still feel no pain as of even of today or now not pain, but less pain or at least deal with it much better. And these are the methods that we didn't use uh, 10 years ago. And, you know, when I see Bosniaki, who also has the autoimmune kind of very similar uh, disease and she played, you know, not for a long time because, again, like I said, it's pretty much incompatible with um, professional uh, sports. But you know, she she kind of hang, hung in there for a year. So I just decided. I think it was more of a personal um, challenge, uh, just to say, okay, you know, I stopped so quickly. I just want to have another chance of being back on the court and um, you know, reuniting with uh, with the crowd and just with reuniting with tennis in general. And uh, with that, I feel like it really happened for me, and I was really happy about that. 
When we look back at uh, that that early portion of, of the, your career, uh, before obviously the the back gave you too many issues, and and you did have to stop. Uh, you were posting so many terrific results. You had a couple great titles in 2007. We mentioned the the mixed doubles, French Open title, and then of course you had a great quarterfinal run at the U.S. Open in 2006. Now that you are older and in your 30s, not that it's actually an old age at, at all, uh, th- this comeback for yours, is, is it like results focused or, or is it just sort of missing and, and loving the game of tennis? For me, it was, like I said, a pure personal challenge of just reuniting with tennis because, as you said, I started very at a very young age. Uh, when I was 16, I was already in the top 30. Um, and, you know, I played tennis since I was four or five years old, and the whole plan of my life plan was to be a professional tennis player. And I think I've only spent like four or five years on professional tour. So I can't even say that these are like the ultimate results or that I achieved anything. This was only the beginning. Mm. So for me, uh, when I stopped at 20, it was a huge shock in my life. Um, you know, I dealt with it the way that I could, the way that I did. And then, like I said, I saw that there were some new medical um, treatments available to deal with this pain. And for me, it was just a, a personal challenge to kind of play again. But um, we, we say about the age, it's not that I, like you're right, we don't necessarily feel older. When I played when I was 15, when we thought about somebody who was 30, yeah, you would retire, absolutely, because that was like the maximum age you would play. But now, everybody plays over 30, and like even 35, everybody still feels young, whether it's on the woman or the men's store. So definitely there's been a lot of progress. So it's not like I necessarily feel old right now. But there's just another aspect is that I'm actually a mother. I have two young children now, too. And that's a huge aspect that maybe I didn't necessarily put um, in perspective when I thought I should be coming back. Um, I didn't realize that. Well, not that I didn't realize it, but maybe I forgot that tennis is a baby in itself and that it has to be your number one priority. And that's what I had when I was 20. But it's not what I have now. I am tennis cannot be my priority when I have two small children who are completely dependent on me. So I think this is something else that um, other than getting back to the tennis form, getting back to the physical form is dealing with this part of life of being a mother. And are you even able to um, be as committed as you need to be um, in tennis with having two small children around? Well, much respect goes out to you for uh, even making the attempt and and juggling and, and, and fulfilling all those roles at once and we, uh, we obviously wish you the best with that. Now, wh- when you stopped at 20, most people at the age of 20, they're, you know, either in university or college, in school, th- they haven't even tried their first career yet, and, and there you were sort of uh, closing the door on one, or at least you, you must have thought you were at the time. How difficult a transition was that for you, and what were some of the things, um, obviously there was the commentating that you got into, but what other things helped you make that transition away from being a professional tennis player? Well, it was super complicated because, as you say, everybody in their 20s, they started going to school, and I had all of my friends who were like, oh, let's go travel, let's go there, let's go visit this. And I was like, well, I've actually been everywhere already. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like I, you know, like I don't want to go to Australia to visit. Like, I've been there already like 10 times. Been there, done that. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's like, okay, I, should I go back to school? Um, I mean, what kind of job am I going to get? Like, what do I really need to do or what do I want to do? So no, definitely it was extremely difficult to to transition. Luckily, I had a you know a good um, support system. I had my family around me, and I was able to kind of get live day by day. And I think the TV obviously helped me a lot. I started off doing very little with the French television during the French Open, 
And then I did a little bit more because at, at first I'm like, I never want to come and take tennis. I never want to come and take women's tennis because I don't want to be uh, talking about girls that I should be playing against. Like it was really, it was be, it would be too difficult for me to do. But, um, you know, again, with a good staff, with a good team, uh, with the television crew and with the journalists, it actually turned out to be a really fun experience and a way for me to actually kind of stay in the tennis world. And it actually progressed in a way that I didn't imagine um, that it could in a positive way. Um, but, yeah, definitely keeping busy was, was important for the transition. But, but, again, it took time. It took time and it took a support because it's a very tough uh, thing to do. Well, uh, that's great that you were able to find other passions after, after leaving the sport uh, physically uh, at a young age. And uh, I'm sure you have watched a lot of tennis over the past, I guess, 11 years now, uh, given that you, you have done so much commentating. What do you notice, I guess, in the women's game that maybe has evolved or changed since your previous playing days to, to now? I think actually when I commentated, I didn't necessarily feel that it was that much change out of the fact that um, obviously we have, we have a lot of more different champions in each tournament. When I played, we kind of always had the same players at least get in the semis and the finals and the first rounds were always very easy for the seeds. I think now uh, women's tennis is much more um, complete. Like even the girls in the top 50, top 75, top 100 can, can beat any, anybody. And that's not because the top is weaker. It's just because, uh, the lower-ranked girls are much stronger. But actually what I felt that was very different from when I played to when I played my couple of tournaments at the end of last year was how physically strong the girls were. I mean, when I played, I think Kim was maybe one of the strongest girls on tour. Now she's probably, she's definitely not one of the strongest girls uh, on tour because you have everyone. Like even as a thing, I was at Wimbledon and I saw Conta, which doesn't look that um, physically strong on, on the court, on TV. But when you're actually standing next to her, she's like super tall and she's super fit and super strong. And I kind of felt like when I was in the lockers in Luxembourg or in Poitiers, I was like, ooh, I'm actually really small compared to all of these girls, which is something that I'd never felt when mm-hmm. I was on tour 15 years ago. So I think the physical aspect, definitely you have much stronger and better athletes now than we did uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, we feel over here in Canada like we have a pretty strong, impressive athlete in uh, Bianca Andreescu. What are your impressions of uh, Bianca if you've had a chance to watch her and, of course, her winning the U.S. Open last year? Oh, I love the way she plays. Um, and again, you know, I think you don't realize on TV how uh, physically strong and, uh, and big she is. Um, I actually saw her in Paris. And again, like these are already, even at a very young age, really complete athletes. And I love her game. I love how she can do absolutely everything on the court. She can come in. She can use drop shots. She can be defensive when she needs to. She's a great mover and a great athlete. And, you know, I hope that physically she, you know, she'll stay away as much as possible from, uh, from injuries. Um, you know, her character is very special. I think you can either like or dislike it. She's got, you know, kind of a, an attitude on, on the court. I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, but she's definitely got personality on the court. But tennis-wise, obviously, I think uh, uh, her run last year in the tournaments that she did play was just absolutely amazing. And I think no one could beat her uh, when she was playing, when she's playing the way she is. Now, we're very excited about uh, what she can do for Canadian tennis. Obviously, when, when you left the tour, Canadian tennis, both both male and female, we didn't really have any singles players that stood out as potential Grand Slam threats. And now it seems between Denis Shapovala, Felix Ojeali-Assim and Bianca, suddenly Canada is uh, stepping up in the tennis world. 
Who are some other players um, who impress you the most these days? Uh, maybe younger talent that has come about that uh, that you're excited to to watch as well uh, in the in the years ahead here. Yeah, and you guys even had Bouchard a few years ago also, and she, you know, got to all those semifinals. Um, so definitely, t- t- Canadian tennis got so much better in the in the last few years, and that's great. And I think, uh, you know, with having two big tournaments in uh, in Montreal and in Toronto, it's important to also have the players to kind of keep uh, the crowds going and have, you know, their own uh, national players. So that's great. I think for the younger players, I think, you know, as we saw with, uh, with Canon as well, um, you know, winning the Australian Open uh, maybe wasn't didn't come quite as a surprise just because of the amazing last year that she had. Um, I mean, we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of new players, but at the end of the day, it's maybe not about how well they play, but the consistency because maybe this is what's lacking really in the in some of the top players. And uh, when I look back at your career, uh, obviously I, me- I mentioned the mixed doubles title at the French Open and some great singles results. Uh, when you look at back back at those playing days, any any moments that maybe stand out to you as as your best moments on court? Well, I think you winning in the the mixed with the with Richard. I was I was only sixteen and he was eighteen. That was our first year on on tour, and uh, you know we're getting wild cards. Um, in the singles and losing very early, and then actually ending, uh, ended up winning the the mix in front of the home crowd at a very young age. I think that's always extremely special, even though obviously the main goal was to play singles. But I think already having that um, experience really helped because we went uh, on and played extremely well at uh, Wimbledon after that. Um, so those were great moments. I think uh, obviously playing on the center court, even though I lost uh, against uh, Serena, was absolutely amazing at Wimbledon in the fourth round. Um, you know, playing Serena and Maria at the U.S. Open two different years, uh, fourth round and quarters was, uh, you know, those are magical moments that you experience playing in front of, um, in, uh, in, in a night session. Um, you know, I think, like I said, it's tough because you don't actually in- fully enjoy it while you're in the moment because you kind of think there's always going to be more coming or that, you know, you want more. So you don't necessarily appreciate it as much. Um, but obviously, when I look back, uh, I think that uh, you know tennis definitely got really special feelings for me. And uh, I guess maybe it feels like we're looking back a number of years, but the names you mentioned and Serena Williams still inside the top ten at uh, age 38, Maria Sharapova still playing on tour. Uh, does it amaze you that that these women are still competing at the level they do? Well, it's like I said, I feel like when uh, we started off, like the the other generation, like 30 years old, that was it. But now, um, I think obviously Serena and maybe Federer also, they kind of really uh, showed that, you know, with, with the right um, stability, with the right consistency, with the right training, the right nutrition, you can really kind of stay on top for a much longer time. But then again, it's all about the motivation. I think this is what impresses me most. It's not necessarily that they're physically still out there, just that they're still motivated to be traveling, to be on tour, to be playing against the younger generations who want absolutely to beat them, and just to still have that hunger to get out on the court and play. I think this is what is most impressive, and that goes also on the men's side. How do these guys who are beating all of the records still want to be out there and still want to be uh, playing tennis and competing with, at the highest level? 
we're certainly enjoying watching it and, and looking forward to seeing where your motivation takes you next as well. You, you mentioned that maybe things were a bit rushed when you came back to uh, playing tennis in the fall. Uh, what do you need to do, would you say, between now and when you get back on court in a competitive uh, match? What's it going to take for you to feel that you're ready to, uh, to resume playing now? Um, you know, I think for me it's just about getting my priorities and kind of really wanting what I want. Um, and understanding what I want and what I'm able to do, um, what I'm able to give the sport. Like I said, I I rushed, certainly, but I wouldn't have done it any other way because this is who I am and this is what I wanted. I wasn't planning on practicing for a year to come back and, and play. Uh, for me, it was really like an like an impulse to say, okay, I, I want to get back, I want to play, and I, you know, I did a good job for five, six months, but now I feel like I need to take a step back and kind of really um, understand um, what it is that I want to do in the next few months, in the future, because um, I have a lot of things to deal with on the side, and that sometimes I can take your focus away uh, from, like I said, tennis that's also supposed to be your number one baby. Well, we're wishing you all the best no matter what your next move is. We Thank also you. really appreciate you taking the time to join us tonight, and I should tell our listeners you did it on uh, short notice as well, so we appreciate you coming no through for us. And um, no Thank you. look forward to uh, maybe touching base down the road uh, and, uh, and talking tennis again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. There you have it, former world number 12 Tatiana Golovin, and obviously uh, still working her way back um, with the tennis game and, and hoping she can stay healthy. And it's still a long road back. I, I don't think we have like full confirmation that she will make the return to the WTA tour, but it, it's great to see her put the effort in. And that shows you how much passion I guess she has for the sport. And you look back at some of these results uh, that she did produce in her career. Uh, it, it looked like she was on a trajectory easily towards top 10, top five. And, and you see how injuries can sometimes really derail a, a great career. Yeah, considering she was just 20 years old, there was so much to look forward to. Her last Rogers Cup uh, that was played in Toronto was the semifinals she made in 2007. And in the draw there, en route to the semifinals, she played against Dominika Sibokova, uh, Francesca Schiavone, and Elena Yankovic, all players who have now retired. So she's almost from like a different era. Um, There aren't too many players really who are left uh, from that time. And the game has changed so much since then as well. So uh, it is going to be a big ask for her to be able to sort of meet that evolution at the age now of 32. And and still, uh, obviously, the body is adjusting because, as she mentioned, uh, some injuries towards the end of 2019. And, and she said to us, quite frankly, uh, maybe she went in a little bit uh, naively, not realizing just how tough it was going to be for her. Yeah. Um, nice thing, I guess, is, is she is taking inspiration by the fact fact that uh, players on tour, both on the women's and men's side, seem to have more longevity these days. Uh, you're, you're playing longer into your 30s, which we didn't used to see, so she's certainly taking inspiration from that. But, but you're absolutely right. When you look at the players she was playing uh, back in the prime of her career, basically all of them have moved on and retired. You look at uh, seven career singles finals and... And uh, I'm looking at a few of these losses here to Justine Hennen, who, of course, was a fantastic Belgian champion, but has long since left the game. Nadia Petrova, another one. Nicole Vitasova. This is really just a different era. But then at the same time, she's only 32 years old. So it's not like it's impossible. 
And kudos to her for coming back while she's also balancing, you know, being a mom to two young kids and, uh, and just add her name. I don't think there's ever been so many, you know, parents, uh, you know, mothers who have played on the WTA Tour at once. I mean, just when you look at the Monterey draw this week, there's Kleisters, Tatiana Maria, Katerina Bondarenko, Victoria Azarenka. Uh, Tatiana Golovin is not in that tournament, but she is a mom who's trying to make her way back onto the tour. So just so much respect. And uh, this week, obviously, we've got International Women's Day coming up uh, March 8th. And just, uh, you know, we tip our hat to all the uh, hardworking uh, women and and moms who are uh, working hard on the sport, training hard, entering tournaments with the goal of being competitive and still finding time to be uh, super parents at home as well. So that's no easy task for sure. Um, And Ben, one other thing that just I thought about as she was talking is I didn't realize the autoimmune component to um, her early retirement either. I thought it was just back injury, but that made me think about Venus Williams and Caroline Wozniacki, both who have had to endure autoimmune uh, issues as well. And I think we kind of just kind of brush over that, not realizing just how difficult it is to be able to get up every day and and knowing you're not going to necessarily feel your best, but have to go out and train and compete. And I think it puts a lot into context when we see Venus's struggles and we see how Caroline Wozniacki really only stayed on tour about a year after her diagnosis. Um, No easy feat to be battling that at the same time. No, certainly Venus Williams stands out because it it was a long time ago that she was actually diagnosed with that autoimmune uh, diagnosis, which was uh, the Sjogren syndrome. And uh, one of the key elements of that syndrome is feeling fatigue and feeling exhausted. And you can think of how physical uh, a sport tennis is and how taxing that is on the body that probably come 2011 and you looked at the career Venus Williams had already produced to that point, you wouldn't have been surprised to see her step away uh, maybe a year or two later. And here she is uh, still pushing on. You can see why she's an inspiration for so many of the younger players on tour. Uh, at the same time, uh, it's becoming more and more difficult, I think, for Venus Williams to, to win matches at the WTA level. She was playing in Acapulco this, this past week uh, and, and went three sets in her first round match but lost. Uh, but she is still pushing on. She was playing in Monterey here as well. Another three-set loss. So she's competitive in these matches. Uh, she's still close. Um, but you have to think uh, maybe the, the end is, is closing in for Venus Williams, who is such a tremendous athlete. I think one of the best uh, the women's tour has ever seen. Yeah, you cannot go on forever. At some point, uh, the end of the line is going to come for every player. And speaking of that, uh, a big news that dropped last week. It was the day after our last podcast, so the timing wasn't the greatest for us. <laughs> no. But uh, Russian legend Maria Sharapova announced her retirement. Uh, Maria Sharapova, winner of five Grand Slams, including at least each of the four majors, which there are not many players who can say that. Uh, one of ten women, uh, in fact, to hold each Grand Slam. 19 years on the tour, a career that most would absolutely love to have. Um, and, and she announced that she just cannot continue to go on anymore. Um, ben, what do we remember Maria Sharapova for most as she closes this chapter of her, of her life? Well, if, if I'm looking on performance on the court, uh, you're 
always going to remember her fighting spirit, her competitive drive, and, and her will to win. Uh, she was a relentless competitor on tour, and I, I think that still shows over the last couple of years on tour. Even though she wasn't getting the results, she was dealing with a brutally nagging shoulder injury that was recurring and was still out there scrapping and fighting, trying to find ways to win matches. Uh, even just seeing her compete at Rogers Cup this past year, going three sets with Annette Contivate, who is a, a great young player, uh, she still had that competitive drive in her, but finally sort of listening to her body and realizing uh, it is time to stop. Uh, another element that you can't overlook with Maria Sharpova is she really is one of the most marketable, biggest stars, I think, in women's, not just tennis history, sports history. I, I was, you know, doing a little digging on this, and she was the most searched women's athlete in 2005, 2008, 2011. She's the second highest earning women's athlete of all time, $325 million, and that, that's just behind Serena Williams. And uh, it, it all really started back in 2004, bursting on the scene and, and winning Wimbledon. That was one of the most memorable Grand Slam runs and victories I, I think we've ever seen. Yeah, big time star power, brand power, marketing power. Yeah. Um, earned, I, I don't have the numbers, but I'm guessing more money off the court even than on it. And she's certainly going to be set for life. And I don't just mean with those uh, sugar pova candies that she's <laughs> selling. She's everywhere. Yeah. Um, when you think about what she's done and, and the intensity uh, that you mentioned from this past summer, for those who were in Toronto and were lucky enough to catch her one last time in Canada, um, uh, even in the practice uh, sessions at the Rogers Cup this summer, I saw her hit with Kiki Burdens playing a practice set, and it was high-level intensity, no talking to each other between points. Marie would go sit down, and it would just be staring ahead and visualizing and focusing just in practice. So yep. uh, it is disappointing that it, it, it isn't something she was able to really hang up the racket on her own terms. But when you think about all that her body and her shoulder in particular has been through, through, through the years, there have been many other times in her career where she could have called it a day but chose to come back, reinvent the serve, totally different motion, and try to continue competing, you know, not just for a few extra dollars, not because she enjoyed the travel or that she wanted to win. She wanted to win more slams. Uh, that clearly uh, wasn't going to happen. And, and one thing that we'd be remiss not to mention, of course, was there is controversy around Maria Sharapova's career. Uh, still many people out there that are highly critical of her because of her failed drug test at the Aussie Open in 2016 uh, for using meldonium, which had been banned only a few short weeks before in that calendar year by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Um, initially, a two-year suspension reduced to 15 months, um, and, and she was off the tour until April 2017, just not the same when she came back. What do you make, you know, when we assess her overall career, the criticism uh, the fact that there's still many people out there that are very negative towards her, justified or or not, given what she's been through. Well, I, I suppose you're justified to, to whatever opinion you like of a player. Uh, but I, I always say uh, to people about Maria Sharapova, you can't view someone's career 
in a vacuum. You, you can't just sort of decide and look at this one drug suspension and, and sort of gloss over this career like Maria Sharapova uh, was only a great player because of a drug. I, I think that's completely nonsense. Uh, meldonium was the drug in this case, which uh, rendered that positive result. And, and this was actually an over-the-counter legal drug I- until that year that she tested positive. And the ITF ruling was very much sort of up in the air. They basically acknowledged and accepted Maria Sharapova that she didn't knowingly take it as a PED, but at the same time decided, well, that even though it was unintentional that she took that, uh, she has to have the wherewithal that the drugs have been updated to no banned substances for the year. And uh, I think that it was just a, a very bad mistake on Maria Sharapova's part at that time. Uh, She was deservedly punished for it. And uh, look, she's always going to have her critics. I think she was one of the most polarizing players uh, on the WTA because as you talked about her intensity, she wasn't chatting with Kiki Burton. She wasn't the type to, to play nice <laughs> she on the tour. To make she was yep. never out to make friends, right? Uh, she had her own team around her and she was very, very guarded. Uh, if anything, I, I think it felt more like she had a few enemies on tour, little spats with uh, Serena Williams, who I want to say was a, a great rivalry, but we know Serena completely dominated uh, that matchup between the two players. So Sharia Par- uh, Maria Sharapova was, was not well-liked on the tour. I sometimes think that might lend itself to how players reacted to that drug suspension after it happened. Um, it's important that we acknowledge it, uh, but for me, it, it doesn't taint the legacy of her career. Yeah, and you can't fault her for using the substance before it was made uh, you know, illegal. Correct. And it doesn't taint any of her accomplishments before it. And after, let's be honest, I mean, post-suspension, she played in nine Grand Slams, only made it to the quarterfinals once at the French Open in 2018. So, you know, there was nothing after it to to really get too excited about, unfortunately, for Sharapova fans. And for her detractors, I think it kind of proves the punishment was enough, taking 15 months off the tour uh, and at a time when she was still contending for slams. And once she came back, she just never seemed capable of really staying healthy enough to return to uh, any sort of shade of her former self. But when you look at the five slams, I wonder how many current players, you know, young players, because there aren't many active players that, that have that many slams. I can only really think of Venus and, and Serena. How many current players do you think could even get to five slams? It almost seems in some ways to be like an unreachable kind of number, given the fact that there's so much depth and so many players, a list of like, my God, almost two dozen players at any slam who could realistically have a shot at it. Yeah, and it's uh, it's going to be very challenging and, and so impressive that you look at her first slam coming in 2004 at Wimbledon and her last one 10 years later, 2014 French Open. That's very difficult to do. Probably if I were looking right now and picking some names of players I think could maybe get to five grand slams, Simona Halep I think could be a possibility. You look at Ashley Barty, she's still not 24 years old and... Bianca Andreescu has to be oh, yeah. a, a possibility of someone who could get to five Grand Slams. And also, if we can, if we see the continued uh, performance from Sophia Kennan, what she produced at the Australian Open, she has to be a threat as well. And uh, I, I know this is going to feel much too soon. Uh, Coco Goff, Naomi Osaka already has two as well. So I do think there are some names right now on tour who could get to a number like that, but it will be but very, not a, very but difficult. But not a given, right? But not, not a, a given, given at all. Like, no. 
when we go back to Sharapova winning Wimbledon at the age of, what, 17, yeah. I think everyone was like, okay, mega star potential here. We're going to see many, many slams. And now how many players can you look at? I don't think there's anyone you can look at and say definitively, oh, yes, this one is going to grab a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. So it's just an interesting time and I think a little bit of a difference on the WTA Tour. Um, should be noted for any super fans who want to see Maria Sharapova play this year, there is still world team tennis. And Sharapova is scheduled to play two matches with the Orange County Breakers uh, this season for the WTT. July 28th versus the San Diego Aviators, July 29th versus the New York Empire. So if you're a Sharapova super fan, you probably don't want to miss the chance to uh, get one last, last glimpse of her while she's uh, you know, still pretty much in, uh, in playing form and playing shape. Yeah, there is uh, still the opportunity there, uh, so you certainly don't want to miss it. Uh, we had more, uh, a couple other WTA events this past week, uh, the one that stands out being Doha and uh, Arena Sabalenka, one of the most feared hardest hitters on tour in my eyes, uh, picking up her first title of 2020 and uh, defeating Petra Kvitova there in the process. Sabalenka, I think, was a name probably a couple years ago we were really looking at for uh, a serious ascent and uh, contending for Grand Slam titles, and uh, she certainly found her form this past week in Qatar. Yeah, someone we're always talking about and just waiting for things to sort of click. And uh, it it seems like it's kind of uh, up and down as it is for so many, but a good triumph for her. And when she's on her game, my goodness, she's one of those players that nobody wants to be on the other side of the net from. Um, uh, Another big news in Doha, of course, that we cannot uh, fail to talk about is Gabby Dabrowski continues her fine play in 2020. And this partnership with uh, Alona Ostapenko or Yelena Ostapenko, depending on which first name you like to use, is, uh, is uh, really um, uh, showing some results here, including making the finals in Doha, where uh, en route she defeated, they defeated, I should say, a couple of really strong, like top-of-the-world doubles teams in uh, Elise Mertens and, and Sabalenka, who we just spoke about, and those two have been a great doubles pairing. And they also defeated uh, Kiki Mladenovic and Tamea Babos. So um, great things from, from Gabby, and uh, this new partnership definitely seems to be working. So should bode well for their chances as we uh, approach the Sunshine Double. And, uh, and Gabby, someone who's going to be counted on for Canada later this year at the Olympics, um, if we can get her with the right partner, also a potential medal contender in women's doubles uh, in Tokyo. Yeah, would love to see her team up with Vashik Pospisil if possible. I will also mention, by the way, we, we almost uh, glossed over the fact that Sharon Fitchman with uh, alongside Katarina Bondarenko uh, was in the doubles final at the Mexican Open in, in Acapulco. So another great result there for, for Sharon Fitchman. We know she was on the comeback trail a couple of years ago and uh, producing some great results in doubles as well. So uh, fantastic uh, for her. Great results and, there. And sorry, Ben. Um, and also speaking of comebacks, I feel like this episode this week is all about like returns to the game and leaving the game and, <laughs> yeah. and the whole full circle coming back to the game. Um, a Canadian is coming back to the game after a nearly two-year hiatus, recently turned 21-year-old Charlotte Robillard-Millet is coming back to play for Canada. And she is in a 15K, a 15,000K tournament in Tunisia um, starting out there. She won her first qualifying match and... Uh, Nice to see her back after some time away, and uh, she plans to play next in Fredericton, and beyond that, it'll be sort of dependent on wild cards and and things of that nature, but, um, you know, at the time, uh, a talented youngster with a lot of promise from Quebec, and uh, also good buddies with Bianca, 
And so we wish her all the best as she gets back onto the uh, competitive tennis court again. Yeah, opportunity to see her on the East Coast in Fredericton. And she's still playing in Tunisia, actually, right now. She's won uh, three consecutive matches there. So uh, great results for her. We will shift over to the men's side. We had a couple uh, 500 events, of course, Acapulco as well. And uh, let's lead with Dubai because Novak Djokovic has been really the story of the season. Uh, completely dominant. Um, he still has not lost in 2020. And if you actually date back to last year with his win streak, uh, we're at 21 consecutive matches now without a loss in 2020 when you look at Davis Cup. And uh, he defeated Stefano Tsitsipas in the final, uh, had his back against the wall against Gael Mofis uh, and saved three match points before rallying and beating Mofis and now 17 and 0 in that head-to-head matchup. I think the question is, can anybody stop him this year? Poor Gail Mofis, I just have to say. (laughs) I mean, after going 0 and 16 in his career against Djokovic coming into this one and then having multiple match points, he must've thought, finally, I'm going to end this curse. And it made me think of uh, a really fun player back from the 1970s, Vitas Gerolaitis who had a terrible losing streak against, uh, I believe it was Bjorn Borg. And he, he finally beat Borg in their 17th encounter and said, famously said, nobody beats Vitas Gerolaitis 17 times in a row. <laughs> and I thought, well, 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 here it is for Monfils, you know, as he was so close, he was on the cusp of being able to say the same sort of thing about Djokovic, but never, Djokovic is never ever out. I saw some of the pictures on Twitter and social media of the insane splits with the racket extended. I just, it hurts me just watching him play, even in still pictures, it hurts to watch him play. Um, What an incredible, incredible start to the season. And the fact that he's on an 18 match winning streak or 18 matches without a loss here in 2020, and it's only the seventh best winning streak of his career Holy smokes! Who's who's gonna who's gonna end this one? Because uh, it, it seems like he's primed to to keep this one going for a while here. Yeah, it is uh, pretty terrifying. And Novak Djokovic in this forum, almost unbeatable. Uh, he talked about uh, that match against Galmofis uh, saving the match points. He says it's it's like being on the very edge of a cliff. You just ma- try and make sure you don't go over. Uh, and he did not go over. He, he rallied, uh, just finding a way to survive and then sort of took over in the third set when Monfils ran out of steam and had a comfortable uh, straight sets win over Stefano Tsitsipas there in the final. Uh, we know with Serbia, he won the ATP Cup, of course, the Australian Open as well. And uh, now we'll head into the Sunshine Double as the perennial favorite uh, at Indian Wells and Miami. I think before we get to that, uh, just over in Acapulco, Rafael Nadal capturing his third ever title there and 85th of his career. He beat Taylor Fritz there in the final. We did not get the rematch with Nick Kyrgios from that fiery encounter last year uh, as uh, Kyrgios still dealing with a problem in his wrist and he had to withdraw. Pretty comfortable and straightforward tournament for Nadal. He beat Dimitrov in straight sets uh, in the semis. Did not lose a set for the entire tournament while we had a couple other big names uh, like Stan Favrinka, Alexander Zverev fall a little earlier um 22nd hard court title for rafael nadal I, I guess i have to ask is he going to be the top threat to stop djokovic on his winning streak or is it going to be somebody else i don't think it's going to be rafa actually really? and um i you know i don't want to disparage winning in acapulco but and you can only beat the players that are put in front of you but 
you know, defeating Taylor Fritz. And don't get me wrong, Fritz is playing some solid tennis and he's up to a, a nice ranking just inside the top 25, I believe now. But um, Nadal against Djokovic on hard court, I mean, it just it hasn't been in his favor more often than than not of late. And, uh, and I don't know if, you know, Djokovic was joking, kind of joking in post-match about how his goal is to go undefeated for the whole season in 2020. And they were like, you're joking, right? And he's like, yeah, I am, but uh, maybe I'm not. And he was joking and he was having fun with it. And I I love that sense of humor of his, but it's going to take something else to beat him. I mean, it's going to take one heck of a draw in front of him where he just gets pushed perhaps to the point of exhaustion where the body just needs to, to recuperate and have a break. Could Nadal be the one to take advantage of that moment? Perhaps. But uh, I, I get the sense that uh, if it's going to be anyone, it's maybe going to be a younger, fresher type of player. Um, could it be a CC pass? Uh, I mean, he wasn't able to take a set off him this time, although Novak did say he sees Stefanos as a future number one, which is very complimentary. And um, gosh, you know, Novak deserves a little bit more credit because he is a heck of a nice guy. And he really is someone that uh, tries to uplift, I feel like, you know, those who are coming after him. And uh, I, I feel like, uh, well, I'm just happy we're giving him some, some credit here as it's absolutely deserved. There's, there's really nothing negative or critical you could say about someone who's undefeated on the court and saying all the right things off it right now either. Yeah, certainly. Uh, no disrespect to Novak Djokovic, who's been completely dominating the 2020 season and is the rightful world number one. Maybe I'm looking at a, a Dominic team uh, seeking out some revenge for that thrilling uh, five-set Australian Open finals loss. Maybe if he's healthy going into Indian Wells uh, or Miami, he could be the guy to do it. He has certainly the power off the baseline, uh, but that remains to be seen. Novak Djokovic is certainly the guy to beat, and uh, he has won the Sunshine Double Indian Wells, Miami three separate times, did so back in 2016. He says he's highly motivated to attempt to do so again. There you go. And uh, on that note, Ben, I guess we should probably call it uh, a day here. We're ready for the Sunshine Double. We're ready for Indian Wells and Miami back-to-back. I love those two events so close together. And uh, what are we going to see? Are we going to see Djokovic continue this streak? Are we going to see Bianca Andreescu back on the court and healthy again? Which Canadians are going to continue their, uh, their great play as of late or have a deep run? Tune in next week to us here at Matchpoint Canada. We look forward to talking to you then.